Welcome to News Talk, and this is D.G. Martin. My guest is Chapel Hill's John Rosenthal, an internationally known photographer and uh, essayist on, uh, on, uh, on the public radio. Uh, John's now written a book that talks about his memory of a long, dead girl that haunts him and led to his new book. Welcome, John Rosenthal. Well, thank you, D.G. Glad to be here. We want to talk about your book mainly, but other things as well. And uh, how, how, how do you say in a few words what your book is about and why you wrote it? Well, um, Amy Lou Danzer um, uh, was my first girlfriend. And like uh, all first girlfriends, it was a, back in the 1950s, it was a matter of dancing to Bill Haley and the Comets and Little Richard and, and passing love notes in hallways and things like that. That 13, 14, 15. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but um, when I got through the ninth grade, my parents – uh, because I was uh, gotten a lot of bad reports uh, from the school about my behavior and my grades, my parents decided to send me off to a prep school in Connecticut, um, Cheshire Academy. So I lost contact. Of course, we broke up, Amy Lou and I. You know, distance when you're 14. A painful breakup or a friendly well, breakup? Well, you know, or? they're painful at 14. Uh, <laughs> they really are. But still, they they also. Uh, the pain disperses pretty quickly at that age. So I just, uh, you know, that was it. But about six months later, she sent me a note and asked me um, if, uh, how I was liking prep school. And we began a friendship. Um, and it was a, a lovely friendship. We'd meet. I, my parents had moved to the city then. She'd come in from Long Island. Uh, we'd go to plays. We'd go to movies. We'd go to museums. In the summertime, we'd go to beaches. The romance was, you know, gone, but this friendship remained, which was um, odd. You know, most boys, you know, don't really have close friends that are girls. They have girlfriends. But um, when she was 20 and she was a junior at the Rhode Island School of Design, she was asked to leave college because she was acting very strangely. Uh, sitting in the hallways, not saying anything. And uh, you know, they thought she needed a medical leave of absence. <clears throat> and uh, she went back to Long Island with her parents. And three days later, she asked her mother to go to Jones Beach and sketch. And they got into an argument about whether or not she should see a psychiatrist. And she walked up the beach and disappeared. And uh, police came, the helicopters came. Uh, there was no trace of her. Mother thought that she'd hitchhiked into the city to see me, her best friend. Um, at I was at Columbia getting a master's degree then. But her body floated up uh, a month and a half later. And over, what, 50-year period, I thought a lot about uh, her suicide, what it meant. And each decade... I noticed that a different John Rosenthal uh, approached the problem of suicide. It, it, it changed over time. Uh, and so I thought, well, that's interesting. That would, that would actually make for an interesting book to travel inside your own mind over a 50-year period 
with respect or in regard to one particular event, which is the suicide of a 20-year-old? Well, so your, your um, book is, is searching for Amy Lou, mm -hmm. but the book is about you. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I, I'd say it's, always, it's, filtered, it's filtered through me. Now, I was very careful not to write a memoir about John Rosenthal. I mean, I've had a, an interesting life, an adventurous life, but it's not a, been a famous life. Um, there was no adversity over which I triumphed. You know, when you write memoirs, you, you really, in order to attract an audience, you have to have something, generally speaking, that's exciting to say. Um, my life has been largely interior. So the challenge was, can I write a book, a memoir about John Rosenthal without actually referring very often to my life, to my loves, to my marriages, to my children, just my thoughts over time about Amy Lou Danzer. Can they pull that off? So that was the challenge. Well, um, in, early, in, early in the book, you are uh, consumed with looking for her in New York, mm -hmm. New York City. Oh, that was the day that I was, she was told missing. she was missing. Yeah, she's missing, so you're looking for but kind of uh, – if she were really going to come see you in New York, she would have come to you. She wouldn't That's right. be walking up and down. But tell us about your walk uh, where you were looking for her. Well, that was, a key, that was a key chapter in the book. Um, I received a call that morning uh, in my uh, residence hall from my mother saying, have you heard from Amy Lou? And I said, what? No, she's up at RISD. This is Rhode Island. Yeah, Rhode Island School RISD, of RISD. Yeah. So I, uh, I said, no, she's, up, she's at college. She said, no. She, her mother called me this morning and said she was asked to leave college because her behavior was bizarre. And this morning, or yesterday, she uh, went to the Jones Beach with her mother and disappeared, and her mother called me and asked if she had hitchhiked into the city to see you. And I said to my mother, no, she hasn't. And she said, well, keep on the lookout for her uh, just in case and call her parents if she comes to you. So my thought was, uh, well, if she's ill, uh, mm, mm. then she, she might not even know where Columbia University is. So I went out on the street and just walked uh, down Broadway for about 20 blocks. Uh, and the chapter uh, called Disappearance deals with my thoughts as I walked. Uh, this is um, a, an interesting chapter for the reader that, that uh, you take them on a trip through a part of New York that <laughs> some of us know a little bit about but not a lot about. Well, the Upper um, West Side in any case, the butcher shops and, and – uh, the Hallmark card shops and the old old women uh, at the intersection of Broadway. Well, this was uh, obviously a description by a photographer who was not only looking for Amy, but he was looking for um, something to take a photograph of. <laughs> which, or I should I made that assumption, but were you into that at this point? No, yeah. I, I was still. Uh, ten years away from mm. even owning a camera. Well, the, yeah, a lot, a lot. Uh, 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 we should stay with your book, but um, 
A lot of us uh, know you through your pictures of uh, New York City, and as um, you can't go into a restaurant like 411 West without being confronted with uh, <laughs> one of your wonderful, wonderful photographs. And maybe if we have time at the end, we can talk about this. Yeah. But take us what 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 happens now? You, you don't run into Amy, no. Lou. You. No. Uh, uh, so where does that where does that story go at this point? Well, um, there's a little backstory, which is probably central to the book, and that is that um, that September of 1964, she uh, walked into Jones Beach in February of 1965, but in 1964 in September, just before she left to go to. Uh, her third year at RISD, and I was about to begin graduate school at Columbia. She called me up, as would be typical, and said, you know, it's Amy Lou. And I said, let's, oh, great. I, I've got a few days to kill. Let's get together. I've, I've been trying to reach her. And she was very odd on the phone and uh, very untalkative, very unfriendly. And I basically didn't even know why she called me. I couldn't understand this, this person without affect on the other end of the line. And I said, well, you know, you don't, you know, you sound a little sleepy. Let's get together at Thanksgiving. And she said, uh, I'm not so far away that you can't come see me. And I said, okay, yeah. So I went to see her. She was staying at her grandmother's house just outside of New York in Forest Hills. And... Uh, she was, um, from the moment I arrived, she was still without affect. She acted um, bored with my company. She didn't ask any questions. She didn't respond. I was myself. I was full of poetry, full of quotes, full of Bob Dylan. And she just walked beside me, you know, pasty and dull. And I finally, uh, kind of out of anger, you know, I wasn't used to somebody treating me as if I was a boring person. <laughs> I was a young man, <laughs> egocentric young man. I, I left. So that day in New York, four or five months later, when I was walking around uh, thinking about the fact that she disappeared, the question that kept recurring to me was, was she ill on that day? Had she called me to let me know that she was ill, but she couldn't? tell me. And suddenly, you know, even though it was 50 years uh, later, I really did have the beginnings of a book. The book being, um, to a large extent, about the blindness of young men. Um, I simply failed to understand what was going on that day. Uh. And it took me 50 years Well, that was the l l last time you'd see, you, you saw her. That was the last time I saw her, yeah. Um, I, I stormed away. You know, I didn't act mean or anything, but I stormed away. And just to counter a uh, set of facts, mm -hmm. if she had not died, mm -hmm. you might never have been in touch with her again because uh, of this parting in September. Except for one thing, which also uh, stayed with me over the years. Two weeks before she committed suicide, she sent me a drawing in the mail. 
it was like a child had sent it because it was directed to Johnny Rosenthal at Columbia University. Now, that's not the way you mail something to someone. It was like uh, such an innocent address. Uh, and I opened it up, and I thought, in, you know, when I figured out what it was, it was a drawing, you know, crisscrossing lines. I, I saw that it was a picture of my Volkswagen going down the dunes at obviously Jones Beach because we'd always driven to Jones Beach in my Volkswagen. But it turned out, uh, after I heard that Amy Lou was missing, um, I looked at it again and realized it was a picture of a Volkswagen underwater uh, and there were dunes behind the water. So coupled with the fact that our last visit had been uh, so I've been full of such misunderstanding and then receiving what had to have been some kind of reaching out to me. Um, it was mailed February 10th and she uh, disappeared on February 24th. You know, it's, those are a couple of events that can hang out in your mind. Well, you, you got this after, she, after you knew she died. Well, I, I received it um, three days. I received it on the day. You see, with that address, it took 10 days to reach Yeah. Me. So had she mailed it with the proper address on February 10th, I would have probably received it on February 11th. But it took, you know, it went through all kinds of bursters' office and, you know, address, and they finally found me. They found my parents. They sent it to my parents, and I got it on February 20th, and I looked at it, and I thought, oh, look at that. That's, that's such a sweet drawing, mem remembering our trips to Jones Beach. And then three days later, when I heard she was missing, when my mother called me, I looked at it again, and I saw that it wasn't what I thought it was. Well, It was a underwater. If you joined us late, uh, I'm visiting with John Rosenthal about his uh, new book, Searching for Amy Danzer. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin, and my uh, guest is our friend, our known throughout Chapel Hill as one of the greatest photographers we've ever known. But now he's written a new book called Searching for Amy Danzer. And John, when we took a break, you, you, you had gotten us to the point of where you had explained who Amy was and why you were searching for her or mm -hmm. what, it, what we were. And then uh, you want to talk about, you want to uh, break away for just a minute to talk about your photography of uh, these disappearing places and your passion for disappearing, the, the things that are not going to be here. Well, there's always, I mean, at the, at the base of all of, of my work as a photographer, there was always um, the notion that the most important function of photography is the act of preservation. Um, when I was a kid, and I'm sure this is true of you, I'm sure it's true of, of every listener, that one of the most astonishing things of all was looking at photographs of your parents when they were children. Um, they could tell you all about their childhood, but to, to see them, you know, to see my mother as a 20-year-old woman on the running board of a car 
uh, you know, or as a, a nine-year-old child. It's just astonishing. It's 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 quite melancholy, but it's rich in in human uh, meaning. Um, and photographs are all that we have, really, that can preserve the past in in that kind of vivid way. Um, and so, you know, when I started work as a photographer, you know, I went to New York City, I noticed right away that what fascinated me were things that were really on the edge of disappearing. Uh, butcher shops, Jewish pastries, uh, Ukrainian guys playing backgammon in Tompkins Square, old Italian guys sitting outside of their homes in Little Italy. And... Um, I just, I don't know. I didn't get it at first, but after six months, I realized that so many things were being torn down in the name of progress that I actually had to photograph. I wanted to photograph these things that seemed to me to be on the edge of disappearing. Uh, that hymn, Rescue the Perishing, that's a wonderful title. Uh, and it, it describes so much of my work in New York, and of course it describes absolutely my work in New Orleans, when I went down to the Lower Ninth Ward and I saw that it was about to disappear. I mean, the demolition trucks were always within ear. Well, John, uh, some of your friends would want me to ask you and remind you that you do live in a place. It's not New York or New Orleans, but you live in a place that's disappearing. And are you, uh, do you just overlook that because it's part of your ordinary existence? Or are you? Yes. Yes. Um, I, I, when I began to take photographs, I walked around with a camera all the time. Um, and I realized that when I had a camera in my hands, I was not present. I, I wasn't present to whoever I was with. I was thinking about photographs. And um, I decided, uh, it was a philosophical decision, that where I live, I'm not going to photograph. I mean, I will occasionally, of course. But I'm not going to think like a photographer. Um, you know, it'd be like if somebody, I mean, I knew a guy, he, he was always going to write a novel and no matter what you were doing, he, he was taking it down on a three by five card and you'd want to shake him and say, will you stop that and listen to me? Well, I, I think that's the same as, so no, I don't, I don't uh, tend to, to photograph um, Chapel Hill. I'm, I love this conversation, but uh also feel some obligation to uh, return to the book for which you right, have written right. and you're uh, charged with uh, promote, promoting. <laughs> it's all connected. Uh, but it, does, it is connected, yeah. the, the, your photography and your search. But uh, let, let, let me press you a little bit on um, the, the question of your, I don't know, you're just caught up with this woman that you hadn't seen for more than 50 years has been dead for that long. Mm -hmm. And um, if she hadn't died, I, I, I think you all had drifted apart and it was fine. You would see each other at uh, neighborhood reunions. or But, but uh, Amy Lee wasn't going to be an important part of your book, the way, I mean, of your life the way she turned out to be because of this, uh, because of this fact that she died by suicide. That's probably true. I mean, very few of the friends that we had when we were 20, especially a friendship between a, a boy and a girl. I mean, marriage would have separated 
us from the daily routines of our friendship or the, the actually the biannual routines of our friendship. Yeah. I mean, we would have, over the 50-year period, I think as I say at the end of the book, um, we would, in the usual way of things, embark on the long-term project of forgetting each other. We didn't oh, get yeah, a chance yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. We uh, didn't uh, get a chance to do that. So, yeah, she's, she's, uh, she and the problems that surround her are stuck in amber. And that's why, um, that's why she, you know, was a most interesting subject. Well, well, let's take another break. Uh, if you're joining us late, I'm visiting with John Rosenthal. We're not talking, well, we're not supposed to be talking about his photographs. We can't help but, but when he's uh, one of the world's greatest photographers. But we're talking about his uh, new book, Searching for Amy Ludanzer, and he and I'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.T. Martin. My guest is John Rosenthal. We're talking about, of course, we're, we're uh, talking about his new book, Searching for Amy Lou Danzer. And uh, from time to time along the way, we're talking about photography because he may be the world's greatest photographer <laughs> who lives in Chapel Hill. And I'm, I'm pretty good. <laughs> Let's leave. No, well, okay. If that's, if that's the tag you want. Yeah. But we're, we're, I guess we're wrestling. The book is about um, your childhood friend, your childhood girlfriend, and the, uh, as a young woman, she took her life. And it's been more than 50 years ago, and you're still mm-hmm. consumed with uh, searching for her. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't really being consumed, but it, the fact that she would enter my mind so often, mm. it, you know, a- after a while, you would think, well... Why do I still think about that girl? I mean, what is it that, what is it that puzzles me? Of, of Why did you think you had to write a book about it? Well, you know, the puzzling part, um, it grew a little bit over time. And in 1992, 25 years, you know, something like that, after, after she um, uh, died, I put a letter I got permission to put a letter in the uh, Rhode Island School of Design alumni magazine asking if anybody had memories of their classmate back in 1962-63. And uh, I got some notes from two or three um, women. And uh, one of them directed me to uh, the block print student magazine for which Amy Lou wrote. I had no idea that she'd done any writing. So out of curiosity, I went up to uh, the RISD Fleet Library and in, into the archives. In Providence. Show. So it's in not Providence. a long drive, but it's a... Well, I was staying at the Cape at the time. Uh, so, yeah. But I, I went up and the magazine had stopped publishing in 1969, but they had the archives. And so I went through and found every article that Amy Lou wrote. And I can still remember just sitting there in the, in the library that afternoon being stunned to discover an Amy Lou that I didn't know. I mean, she was quite intellectual, much more so than I thought she was. She was a very good writer. She was probably a better writer than I was, and I was a graduate student at Columbia, you know, in the English, getting an English master's program. 
So I just sat there and the thought crossed my mind, who were you that you overlooked, that you didn't see her, that you didn't elicit from her, you didn't ask her the right questions? And why did she keep, you know, caring about me? So, you know, all of a sudden I had a little bit of a story about young men in the 1960s, or I had a story about 20-year-old men any time. And, you know, when it's all interwoven with uh, my thoughts over 50 years, it, it suddenly there was a book. You know? It took 20 years to write, by the way. Oh, well, tell us about the process of writing the book, and what, how did it, how did the, what the book really turned out to be, how did it differ from your idea of, well, I'm going to write a book about my um, connection with Amy Lou turn into what, searching for Amy Lou Danzer? Well, um, there were a few uh, commentaries that I did on the radio about Amy Lou. Uh, one was uh, when I went to visit her parents 25, 30 years after her death. I hadn't seen them. Uh, and uh, another was on the 40th anniversary of her death. So there was little tiny pieces of writing, and then there were, you know, I have kept journals, and I noted certain things over the years, dreams, for instance, uh, that I had that were kind of haunting in which she would appear, and I would say, well, you're not dead, and, and she would say no. Uh, and I said, why didn't you tell me? I was your great friend. She said, a ruse was necessary. <laughs> that and a couple of dreams. So these, well, those, that was not her voice. That was your voice, I guess. Uh, I, uh, yeah. I don't know what dreams are. Well, that'll be another program. I don't either. Talk. I don't either. But the, the fact that, you know, there was this little bit of haunting, of, you know, and it's not like I would dream about it very often, but two or three times a year, uh, it was more than I dreamed about most people except, you know, parents and things like that. Well, uh, what... It, what impact did this um, concern, this relationship with uh, Amy Lou, even though she's dead, what what kind of impact did that have on the rest of your life and your relationships with uh, other women and other people? Well, I was never, I mean, I, I was not in love with Amy Lou when she died. In fact, um, we hadn't really seen each other uh, before that September visit. I hadn't seen her in about eight or nine months. So, and we didn't write. I mean, she wasn't, a, you know, she'd been a girlfriend when I was 14. So, in effect, writing the book was, uh, was more interesting to me. Um, it, it was as interesting as, as going to New York and taking photographs. It was, an, it was a creative experience. So, insofar as, you know, creative experiences affect your other relationships because you're doing it a lot. That's about it. I, emotionally, I was, uh, in, in Wordsworth's famous phrase, I was recollecting emotion in tranquility. That's, that's where he well, says poetry comes from. Well, uh, just let me take a quick side <laughs> trip sure. because as, as a part of your book, you, you, you and your um, then wife uh, traveled to uh, England to see uh, the places where Wordsworth and Keats, uh, yeah, and then to Greece to uh, follow up on the Keats experience and to uh, visit a 
a very famous, except to me, <laughs> Nikos Kassanzadis. <laughs> wrote Zorba the Greek, but I didn't know. In, in any event, on your trip, you went by to see Keats, and I don't think anybody knows about what your middle name is. No, my son's middle your name. Your son's middle name, okay. It's John Keats. And why did you do that? Because uh, Keats's poetry was so affecting to me. Still is. Well, along the right lines at, at Columbia, excuse me for jumping around about oh, this, but uh, back at, you talk about being at Columbia Graduate School and um, you run into a few snobs and a few people who think they know everything. But That's right. You were smart, but not so smart that you thought you knew everything. But what was the, did, did, did um, I mean, what was the, I, I, I kind of understand that from going to school in New England too, that, um, uh, that you had an appreciation for uh, poets and others mm-hmm. whom some of the jerks who were other graduate students kind of looked down on these guys as being Oh, not great poets, but just... <laughs> you, what you ran into, and I wasn't used to I had gone to Wake Forest, and Wake Forest was... I got a terrific education there, but, you know, it wasn't uh, a, an absolutely sophisticated education that would prepare me to deal with these budding literary critics at, uh, at Columbia. I mean, I read... Uh, uh, at Wake Forest out of love because I had teachers who taught me to love poets. But loving poets, you know, that's only one part of what it's like to be in a, in a Ph.D. program at Columbia. You, you need to have the bibliography, right? Uh, you need to know what everybody wrote about the poets. So I was, in that sense, kind of unprepared. And that was the year that I heard that Amy Lou was mm. missing. So, you know, I was full of all kinds of These anxieties. important uh, things in your life, struggling with um, graduate school at a place where you're not totally comfortable at this no, point. I, and, I knew and, I wasn't and then Amy Lou's disappearance. So. And my girlfriend was, was breaking up with me, too. Uh, she was down at Wake Forest in her senior year. So there were a lot of, that was a bad year. <laughs> well, we'll return to that. We're going to take a break and then we'll come back uh, to uh, visit with John Rosenthal. And we're learning a lot about him as we talk about his new book, Searching for, for, for Amy Lou Donzer. Uh, John Rosenthal and I'll be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. My guest is um, our Chapel Hill friend, John Rosenthal, known to us as the greatest photographer in the world. But he's now written a book called Searching for Amy Ludanzer, and we've been talking about that. Uh, John, what, what what have we missed? Well, I, I wouldn't mind reading the epigraph to the book. What is an epigraph? It's a kind of introductory paragraph that might explain s- some of the impulse behind the book. It, it, it was, the, the, this epigraph was from a radio commentary that I did on WUNC in 1992. So if you'll let me assume my old radio voice, I'll read it. Well, there, well um, before you get started, there are people um, who miss your commentary so much, and oh, you. You, made a, you made a a big... Um, 
a big impression on me the first time I heard it, and then I looked looked for them, and I miss I miss hearing them. Oh, thank you. So yeah, let's. Uh, we're, we're bringing back John Rosenthal <laughs> to deliver for uh, folks at WCHL what he no longer does for WUNC. John Rosenthal, yeah, this is about the uh, really a, an introductory part of your new right. book. Right. It's it's the prefatory note essentially. Ours was a young friendship based on the assumption that there was an available destiny full of truth and intensity somewhere beyond the boundaries of what we were being taught by our parents, teachers, and ministers. To get there required discipline and a list of things we should never do. We should never try to be cool, never talk about clothes, and never listen to mood music. We should never believe that money was everything, never learn how to play golf, and never become peevish and responsible like our parents. Our goal, quite simply, was to become artists, or at least the sort of people who set their faces against the grain of American life. When we entered our 20s, we still believed everything we believed when we were 15, because quite simply, we'd corrupted each other for life. <laughs> well, um, you're uncorrupted, but you've uh, chosen <laughs> fields of employment that aren't like you mentioned, your father represented R.G. Reynolds as an attorney, and he was—you were well off. Uh, how do you make money as a photographer, as a, a commentator, um, and now as a as the writer of a new book? How, how, where, what are the, where do the economic rewards come from? Do you get lots of money when you go to give a talk to a <laughs> book club? No, no, you don't make any money. <laughs> Uh, no, when I was a photographer, of course, I had a career and I did commercial work. You know, I do weddings. I do all kinds of things. And, uh, Which can be um, – you can make a living. Yeah, you can definitely make a living. And in fact, I, I chose uh, oftentimes to do weddings because you could make good money on, on the weekend and that would give me um, an entire week to work on my black and whites um, in the darkroom. Uh, if I had a job nine to five, uh, Monday through Friday, then you know I wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to have been the kind of photographer I wanted to be. So yeah, uh, no, I mean a, a book like this, which is published by a, a small but distinguished uh, press um, in Oxford, England, uh, you don't you don't really expect uh, when you write a small book like this that you're going to make. Uh, any money on it. You m might make some. And the press, uh, which is uh, run by a guy named Philip Hoy, who is uh, just the most marvelous editor uh, and very well known for the books that uh, he's published uh, dealing with poets, and some of them are just interviews with Philip Hoy. Um, as he explained to me, you know, what we don't actually expect that we're going to make a lot of money with books like that. But, uh, you know, we want to break even. Of course, if you make money, that's great. And most of what we make, we feed right back into the press. And it's an act of love, uh, the Waywiser Press. That's what it's called, the Waywiser Press. And it's an act of love. He never publishes anything that uh, that uh, isn't uh, on some level uh, 
rather serious and, and largely um, s- centered around um, poetry and poets and the um, yeah. writing, understanding, t- talking about poets. Yeah, in fact, uh, we have one of America's best poets living in Durham, Alan Shapiro, and in 2023, um, uh, Wayweiser Press is going to publish his 23rd book. Uh, it's just, I'm so, I'm so thrilled. I mean, Alan is, is such a great poet, but that's the kind of press that it is. Um, but, you know, if, if you publish a lot of poetry books, you're not in it for the money. Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, poetry, and what you've done is to show you how you can make a living as a fine photographer, but there are many other aspiring photographers who you'd have to tell, this is a hard world to um, get rich. It's a very hard world, Uh, especially for photographers at this point because of the cell phones. Yeah, what, 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 um, well, thanks for coming and talking to us about searching for Amy Lutz. Dan, I've got a couple of questions about photography, and you know, you, in in this book, you talk about uh, things that are happening in the dark room, mm-hmm. and in a way that only somebody who's been in a dark room will know that that uh, the way the chemicals are reacting on this particular day might have something to do with creating a masterpiece. Um, but what does it do that most people who take photos, including most professional photographers now, don't ever go to a dark room. They, they, um, they get their photograph and... Well, the uh, language, uh, you know, which is not arcane, but it requires a lot of discipline. The language of photography is more or less lost. Um, and that, when I, when I see a, a photograph in which I, you know, I can read the, the, the rich language of, of the discipline of photography. It's entirely different than, you know, most of the cell phone photographs I, I, or, or photographs that uh, are, are dominated by the app, um, by the filter. I mean, it's just, it's just a different kind of photography. So I'm only referring to, um, you know, the 150-year-old tradition of photography, which I'm a part, but it really has very little to do with and so, or do you ever use an electronic uh, camera? I, I only use a digital camera at this point. Well, but, how uh, does that fulfill the uh, traditions of the darkroom? Oh, I, I it doesn't. I mean, there's there's a lot of work I can do in Photoshop. That's that's marvelous. I can control a, a, a photograph better in Photoshop than I ever could in a Did it take room. you a while to come to that conclusion? Were you hard to break away from what you'd learned and what you... It, it, it was. It was difficult. Uh, but my my left ankle uh, was bad and standing for three or four or five hours. I was suddenly relieved to be able to sit down in a chair. And you don't miss photos. the dark room? I, I miss the, the photographs that came from the dark room, but no, I can't stand for five hours. <laughs> well, John Rosenthal, thank you for coming and visiting with me today, and thanks for uh, um, allowing me to go off topic. Uh, but but this uh, it's really talking to you. intriguing new book that you've written called "Searching for Amy Ludanza" uh, uh, took me for a long journey. That I'm, yeah. I'm I'm a better and more informed, uh, wiser person for having read your book, and so I'm grateful to you. Thank and, you. 
grateful to you for sharing some of the story with us here on Who's Talking. Uh, my guest has been John Rosenthal, author of Searching for Amy Lou Dunzer. Uh, thanks to him and thanks to you for listening. I'll be back here before you know it. <laughs>